Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sue Paris. Following eight years leading the personal side of professional and academy football, both male and female at Brighton and Hove Albion, Sue now works mainly with elite athletes and her support networks, facilitating their emotional and mental health development. Recently, she helped to co-author a paper called The Boy in a Man's Mask, which is the analysis of a collection of voices from inside the football academy environment, ranging from under-18s to 23s and staff, members who shared their experiences with them through face-to-face interviews. Sue, welcome to the show. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having me. All a pleasure. Uh, Sue, I mean, obviously... We were speaking about we were speaking a bit off camera about this paper, the boy in a man's mask, and hopefully the momentum and the impact which it's going to have on the academy environment and football going forward. Um, what compelled you and your fellow co-authors to have these conversations with staff members and players inside the football industry? I can't imagine they were the easiest to have at times. Mm, that's a great question. Um, well, both myself and Paul Mortimer have been working within football for a long time. Paul longer than myself because obviously he played um, in his younger years um, and coached as well. But um, um, whilst we were more recently within that environment, we were both involved in the um, supporting of, of individuals and their emotions and you know what was coming up for them and and for both of us it was very much about kind of catching them as they were falling um and you know within within that environment it's really difficult and very very challenging for particularly the young the young men to be i suppose i suppose authentic is probably the, the word that comes to mind there and, and be real about how they feel you know they're hence the the title of of the the research the boy in the man's mask because it is very much about masking up about armoring up against an environment that they find um tricky and challenging and there are a number of reasons why they find it tricky and challenging um and um you know, for us, I mean, one of the reasons um, that I went and I left Brighton and went to work um, outside of clubs was because there's a real need for doing the preventative work so that you don't get to the point where these young men are falling and need catching. So, you know, as, as I as we spoke about um, um, off camera, you know, we said, you know, intervention prevention is better than intervention and and that absolutely is my philosophy of the work that um, I'm doing now so the research really coming back to your question was about enabling those voices to be heard that aren't generally heard within that environment that's not to say that the clubs don't want them to be heard but it's those individuals not maybe having the language to be heard, not knowing how to formulate how they feel um, and what the challenges are, um, and also being scared to, to, to be truthful in that environment. Um, and I think fear is, is one of the biggest barriers to those young men particularly, but the, the young women as well, you know, opening up and saying how they really feel and what's going on for them in, in that environment. You know, the fear of not being picked at the weekend, the fear of losing their place, the fear of being labelled as um, anxious or, you know, not emotionally stable. I can't trust them on the pitch. 
because of all of those misunderstandings around emotion and um, mental health, emotional health, etc. So there, there's an awful lot mixed up in the reasons why we decided to do the research. Um, but they're kind of like the main ones, really. And so you've been working with youth for nigh on 25 plus years. I mean, are elite young footballers any different from the rest of the youth in which you have worked alongside? Yeah, I, I really do think so. There are some real unique aspects to a young footballer's journey, without a doubt. Um, you know, from a very young age, there's an identity issue. Um, the language used around young people in the system is very much around, you know, being a football player, being a, a player. Um, and they're not, you know, they're kids, they're young people, they're not football players. Um, they're not, you know, you could argue that you're not a football player until you're you're playing senior football and being paid for doing so. But the labels used within that environment are, are very sticky. Um, and, you know, easily adopted by not just the, the children, young people, but by parents as well, um, and also the staff that, that work with them. Um, other unique factors would be pressure, um, a constant um, observation and judgment about, you know, what they're doing, about their physical side of themselves. So, you know, how tall they are, how tall they're going to be, um, how physical they are how quick they are, what they eat, um, their attitude, you know, whether they're, they want it, whether they're humble, you know, all of these cliches that you get within that environment, which you don't get outside of that environment. So it's a very unique space within which to grow up. Um, and if we don't get the nurturing right and appropriate, then there are an awful lot of consequences for those young people as they go through the system, as they're released from the system, as they become adults as well, whether they're in or, or outside of football. So I think there are some really unique aspects. Um, I'm not convinced they're explored enough, spoken about enough and actually mitigated in any way. Um, and, and I think therein lies part of the problem. And you have enough direct experience of housing young footballers who, you know, even within your own four walls, <laughs> haven't enjoyed your time at Brighton and Hove Albion. I mean, what does a good working relationship look like between those host families and that football club? Oh, crikey, that's a good question. I think it's really important to provide a home for those that are away from their birth home. <clears throat> um, so... You know, obviously, from those that are 16 upwards, a lot of them will need to be living away from home, um, particularly the Irish boys who I have got a lot of um, experience of. And I think it's about understanding cultural differences. Um, you know, so even though the English and the Irish speak the same language, um, there are still a lot of cultural differences as into family values and you know, what a family looks like and who's involved in the family and, um, yeah, but just nuances, you know, different nuances. And I think it's really important to understand those and to, and to explore them and welcome them into your home as well. Um, so I think a, a good host family is about being willing to embrace 
um, I suppose the different experiences of young people and not have too many expectations. Have your boundaries. Boundaries are really important and they're agreed. But then it's about, you know, um, providing an environment within which they feel comfortable, um, that they can trust, um, that they can rest from the other environment that they spend the rest of their lives in um, at that point in their life, you know. So um, making it non-football to a point as well so that they do get that break and that complete kind of, yeah, rest from the pressure, rest from the from you know the, the the ongoing relentlessness of that environment at times so yeah I, su I suppose it's kind of welcoming that really and that work that you did at Brighton Sue I mean it was going to provide you with invaluable context for what you were going to do going forward in the future with elite athletes and working with their support networks mm. I mean getting back to it as well with the research paper which you recently produced I mean, overall, what were the biggest findings that the research showed? Um, I think the biggest findings are this, the, the fear, um, the fear and the uncertainty and how much that impacts on young people's day-to-day -day lives in, in football um, and that mistrust. And that's not... You know, I think one of the th really important things to point out here is this is not about blaming individuals or blaming football or, you know, attacking anything. This is about observing what's really going on for those who are growing up in that environment. And also the staff as well, because we interviewed a number of staff and, um, you know, the fear is there for them as well. There's this constant need to succeed to produce um um you know to win when okay you can kind of you kind of see why that is within a competitive sport but it is an academy it's about development and you know maybe another one of the findings really is about a misunderstanding of what development means you know if you kind of read between the lines and and you know you really analyze the um the, the um the interviews there is a real need to kind of go below the what is being said and actually have a look at what is not being said there as well and I think that's really important too um but yeah I think the, the main finding for me is is this sense of fear this sense of you know, not being able to express that fear and and in some cases not even being able to name that it's fear um you know loneliness is a great example of of you know of the real emotion of fear being um um it from being i suppose manifested in another way you know that loneliness of not being able to share what's going on for you you know there is that element of fear there as well so i think yeah i think for us and i mean I mean, Paul and I had, you know, many discussions after the interviews and, and many since. And, you know, that we both have this sense of, of, of sadness around that, for sure, of, you know, wanting to um, kind of bring that to the fore so that people hear that because it's not currently heard in that environment.
you know, there are other few commentators out there that do see this, particularly ex-players. I've spoken to lots of ex-professional players since the publication of, of the research and um, it really resonates with them, really resonates with them. So we're not just talking about those that go through the academy, we're talking about those who end up within the professional game, carrying that with them. Um, and the impact on performance, as you can imagine, is not going to be conducive. <laughs> and that's that's a heavy baggage. That's a heavy burden to wear. But, you know, we go back and we speak about the fear. I mean, from your own direct experience in the game, Sue, and from your own research, for the people that do end up speaking about that fear, who typically would be the first inside a football club that they would turn to and begin to label that and begin to work through that? Oh, wow, it's a great question because I'm not sure that many actually do talk about it, label it and speak to somebody within the club. And I think that's part of the issue. And that's one of the things that that comes through the research on the recommendations is to have, you know, a safe space outside of clubs where um, youngsters or players or staff can go in order to work through that. Because, you know, we need to, to understand that, you know, in, in in that football environment, because of that fear, why would you open up? Um, and it's not to, so from my own experience, the point at which you see that fear manifesting is things like eating disorders, um, depression, anxiety, um, repetitive injuries. That's the kind of manifestations that fear shows up in when you don't express it. Um, we did a project at Brighton a number of years ago with um, a, a charity called iHeart, and it was very much about looking at the misunderstanding around thought and consciousness and, you know, being in the moment. And I think for football, that's quite imperative because you're always living in the future. You're living in the next game. Um, you're living for the next season, the next preseason, the next contract. So there's that constant looking and living in the future. And that's attached with fear because it's attached to uncertainty. And like you just alluded to, that's a hugely heavy burden to carry. So that's not going to do anybody any good because a lot of the thinking and the mind is going to be with that and not actually in the present moment, living for the now um, and also you know, living to the point where um, you're focused and thought-free thought in that moment in order to be able to perform in that moment, to be able to be your best in that moment. Because if half of you is constantly living in the future and fearful of the future, then you're not fully present and you're not fully focused to perform in the present. I've probably said that a bit clumsily. In a, um, oh, not at all in that but um yeah so the again going back to the work that i do on a one-to-one -one basis that's what we look at and we work on is not living in the past because lots lots of young footballers like oh i had a such a horrendous day at training yesterday like, oh, okay what happened and their whole day will be defined by a, a, a one minute within the training where they made a mistake and it might be a mistake that they saw but nobody else kind of focused on it but they did Mm. Um, but their whole day will be defined by that one minute. So we kind of look at, you know, well, we don't look at that, you know, we acknowledge it and okay, but we'll we'll pick it apart and we'll um, look at it for what it really is. 
Um, we're not going to look for, um, you know, being worried about the next window. Am I going to get that loan move that I've been promised? Um, because that's in another two months. You know, what, what we got control of? We've got control of the present moment. So let's look at that and look at where we are. Um, and that's a way of reducing the fear because it brings things back to controlling the controllables in the moment. So the more work you do around that, I don't even know if this kind of is relating to the question now, but we've kind of gone off on the tangent. That's so me, I apologise. Um, by doing that and coming come to that, then you've got a sense of empowerment. OK, so those um, those individuals have got a sense of, right, OK, great. And it's almost like that that relief, that moment of relief of, oh, great. So I don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about that. Actually, I'm focusing on this. And today I'm not even in football. I'm going to go for that walk. I'm going to go and spend some time with my parents or the dog or I'm going to, you know, take my girlfriend out for the day or, or whatever, you know, or spend some time with the kids. So life becomes life again you know so that's the preventative work is bringing it all back to the moment it's really interesting too because a lot of what you speak about rings through of you know that type a obsessive personality trait where you speak about that footballer whose whole day is kind of defined and purposed by one minute in a training session absolutely it's so very cool. it's very tough for young players as i'm sure that you're aware to realise what got them from A to B, what got them in the building in the first yeah. place, yeah. is bring them forward. And it's interesting, actually, because as you say that, apologies for interrupting, is that a lot of the, the particularly younger men that I work with are very focused on what they're not rather than seeing what got them to where they are. So they, they're already... They are where they are because of their ability, because of their um, the work that they've done, because of, you know, what they've produced up to that point. And they seem to lose that belief and that understanding of coming through that journey and being where they are is so important to hold on to or to, to not even hold on to. That's probably the wrong word there to acknowledge and own because the next step forward, you know, the next steps that you're going to take forward on your journey will be based in that. So you already have so much to where you currently are. But for some reason, the environment that they're in almost wipes that away because of that constant assessment, that constant observation, that constant criticism, that constant inability maybe by some people not to be able to nurture from that basis you know they think oh we gotta we gotta make this guy tough we've gotta you know he can't be soft he can't show emotion he can't you know and we know all of these cliches within that very male dominated environment and again it's not a, a blame thing it's an observation you know it, we all rely on um, habits sometimes don't we to get us through what we're doing so you know some expressions that we use they're not they're not thoughtful they're just used in that moment but if we stop and we look at how we are working with someone right back at that language level that very basic level um, that is where the work needs to be done okay so it's not about us as individuals working with 
um, um, the youngsters in that environment. It's about how they receive what we give. And that means a really open and honest dialogue, which doesn't happen. And it's not until, for example, the work that I do, get them in that space where, you know, I've built that, that trusting space, that safe space, they can say whatever they need, there's no judgment, no criticism, et cetera, that these things then come through. You know, we have a lot of conversations about, yeah, but my coach said this. Yeah, but my coach doesn't like me. Yeah, but my coach thinks, I said, well, why? Have you had that conversation? Well, no, but I know. Well, no, you don't know. You know, and whatever that that you think you know, it's not important. It's what you know and believe about yourself that's important. You know, so let's go back and, you know, you obviously take it back to, to, to basics and build that. And that's the preventative work, because then if you've got that, if you've got that um, understanding about who you are, where you've come from, why you are where you are, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about you that fundamental belief and understanding about you is there. So the preventative work is that. That's not to say that, you know, at times when the coach says something to you, you're like, oh God, that's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you bounce back from that quicker. You remember that actually, no, this is what I know about myself. This is what I believe. And this is where I'm going to work from, not somebody else's opinion or criticism of me. I'm going to work from my understanding, my knowledge, my experience. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> I don't know why I started talking about that, but I think that's quite important in the sense of that preventative work, that, that proactive work, if you like. Yeah. No, I'd have to certainly agree. And I think... The, some of the concepts that you're speaking of, they're somewhat foreign to the traditional football industry where you just get caught on that hamster wheel of execution. Mm. And it's not a case of adding, adding, adding. In fact, it's the having the ability to take one step back, to self-reflect, yes, begin to move and take that step forward. Yes. But for me, there's, there was one actually key quote that stood out to me mm. at the beginning of the paper. And it wasn't from a player, it wasn't from a parent. In fact, it was from a coach reflecting on other experiences. And it's one which I'd like to read out. Um, from a personal perspective, I've seen in my personal, in my perspective, there was a lot of academy cultures, like I said, that used to wield their power unnecessarily or talk to youths in a certain way, which was unacceptable. Now, for me, that rings of not having the necessary self-awareness, leadership, or perhaps even sports psychology skills. I mean, so we speak of the emotional vulnerability of players being unable at times to seek that support. How can we ask players to be emotionally regulated when some cases, and maybe in fact more than some, when coaches are not emotionally regulated? I love that. And you're so right. It's such a great insight because therein lies one of the issues. Um, you know, what we need to remember is that an awful lot of staff, particularly coaches, have come from that environment themselves. So unless you've done the work around emotional intelligence, unless you've done the work around emotional literacy, unless you're able to um, speak in an environment where you can explore your own emotions, why would you be emotionally aware of those that you're working with? And that is absolutely one of the issues. So we need to do a lot of work around that 
with coaches with staff and again it's not about blaming or attacking it's about understanding where those perspectives come from in the first place and working through that now you said earlier um you know i've been working with young people for you know 25 years ish um and i think one of my 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 biggest criticisms of academy football is that a lot of the staff that work within that environment have no input around child and young person development again the boy in the man's mask kind of points to that in the sense that we look at a lot of these young people within that environment as if they are our um uh, counterparts or you know they understand and have the same perceptions as we do um and at best understanding that they they don't have what an adult has um but they but you know there's still that ignorance that misunderstanding of what what a child understands at at 10 compared to what a teenager understands at 16 to what a young adult understands at 19 that you know there's huge differences um, and in order to nurture and develop children and young people appropriately, you need to understand that. You need to know that. You need to have had that input. You need a, a space where you can talk to other people about that. So in football, we talk about technical, tactical. Um, we talk about, you know, analysing the game and, you know, all of that. But we don't talk about child development. We don't talk about adolescent development we don't talk about young adult development you know that's not even on the table um you said earlier about sports psychology sports psychology is about performance you know that what i'm pointing to here and what the research points to and what and the work that i do it's underneath all of that i'm talking about welfare basic nurture um compassion emotional intelligence, all of those basic things that enable us to be the best we can at any part in our lives. But we don't even go there with football. We don't even go there in mainstream education, really. We do a bit. I mean, during teacher education, you you know, you look at growth and development and, you know, but not to the extent that maybe we need to in order to engage those that we're nurturing and developing to the best of their ability. Most of us don't understand ourselves, <laughs> let alone have an insight into how best to nurture other people's children. You know, and I think there is a fundamental missing link there. And ought there to be a better question to be asked, Sue? I mean, should the role of a coach be redefined, repurposed? Wow. Um, oh gosh that's such a good question um, I, th I think the role of coach needs to have an element of understanding children and young people for the stages of development that they're at for sure and I know there are youth development modules and things you know now included in the coaching qualifications but again then they're, they're not robust enough they're not in depth enough It's it's just quite a sad indictment, to be fair. I mean, we spoke again off camera, but speaking throughout this podcast, I mean, 
unfortunately, people will not change until they feel the most amount of pain. There's something a little bit sinister that it would take, I wouldn't say countless, but numerous deaths within an academy environment for players that have just been released for change to occur. And you've spoken about on this podcast, Sue, about you know prevention obviously being a better cure than intervention. And that starts with those who are responsible for creating and maintaining the culture. Whom and where does that start from? God, the $64 million question. Um, well, people create culture, let's face it, yeah? So culture doesn't just appear. People create cultures. And you can have the macro culture of football and then you'll get the micro cultures within that. So a department can have its own culture within the whole culture of an academy, for example. So it comes from good leadership. Um, good leadership in order to create the right nurturing culture needs leaders who understand that, who can see that, who self-regulate, self-reflect, um, um, are constantly involved in developing themselves, I think. Um, so I think you, it's about starting there. Um, and then you need people to be on board with that. So it's about showing you know, the leaders within, you know, creating that, those, whether they're macro cultures or micro cultures, showing the benefit, not just to um, the production, if you like, or the success of the whole, but also the benefit to the individuals within that culture. I mean, you know, everyone benefits from understanding themselves. Everybody benefits from being able to self-regulate and understanding their triggers and understanding and being able to, you know, sit with certain uncomfortable emotions rather than suppress them. But that takes work. Yeah. But it's work that's worth doing for us as individuals, but then also us as a collective, if we are then going to take responsibility for nurturing the next generation. And I think it, there is a responsibility to ourselves, firstly, because we have to start with us. But also a recognition that if you want to be involved with nurturing and developing other people's children, then you have to understand how that works for them as well and be prepared to do the work. You know, we... we we, we bring these talented, enthusiastic, incredible children into an environment where they can't wait to be and, you know, in the buzz and, you know, their little faces and they light up on match day and the rest of it. But by the time they're 14, 15, 16, that's gone. And that is so sad. So sad. But it doesn't have to be like that. It does not have to be like that, you know, that... This is why the work is important. This is why hearing the voices through the research is important because, you know, none of us want children to turn up at an academy worried, anxious, frightened, playing in fear because that goes completely against why we have an academy in the first place. But it happens and it is happening. And that is more the case than the other way, which is those kids turning up excited, can't wait to get their kit on, get out there, you know, as they get older and older. You know, the amount of 
pros that I I speak to who are like I read really, I don't enjoy playing anymore I play because I get paid I don't enjoy this journey anymore it's not fun and yet that is what got them to where they are initially wasn't it the fun and the enjoyment of playing the beautiful game and let's face it it is a beautiful game I adore football but there is a side of it that we're not acknowledging which threatens to destroy a lot of what we've come to love and that's what I find really sad and that's what this is about as well I think as a whole you know and you could argue you know a lot of the arguments are yeah but that's you know it's not just in football it's in this it's in that that's society at the moment but you know we're working in football you know, you have to focus on something. You have to look at something. So let's start being honest. Let's start listening to those that this impacts on. And let's start joining the dots and, and making a real difference. And, you know, let's start enjoying this again. And I kind of think, you know, that that's where I'm hoping the research will kind of point to. At the bare minimum, there should be a threshold. There should be a set of standards that clubs and academies must adhere to. So who's going to be it? There are. There's still the triple P, don't forget. Yeah, maybe that's another podcast. (laughs) And is there enough being done to hold clubs and academies accountable, in your honest opinion? No, because I'm not sure that it's seen in that way. I don't, again, it's not a blame thing. It's a, it's a, it, it probably feels like, oh, God, this is such a lot of work and this will never change. And there's that that real, that side, isn't there, that's that's really, um, oh, well, that's football, you know, we need to get on with it. You know, if we change that, then the essence will go out of the game, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you get those, those soothsayers on, on that side. And it it doesn't have to be like that. I think it's about, it's about just being honest and about willing to hear all of the voices you know a a lot of my work is around equality diversity and inclusion as well and and the the, one of the issues there and with football is that you haven't got enough inclusion and diversity around the table in the first place so there's only a few perspectives that are being heard and they're generally perspectives that maybe have never worked in the academy never worked with young people um, um, generally only male um, generally only white um, um generally within a certain age bracket so what you've got is you've got an echo chamber going on oh no that doesn't happen that doesn't happen um oh i can't see that but well no they wouldn't because their perspective is very different to others within that environment whose voices are not heard whose opinions and perspectives are not held as valid even though they're probably more valid you know, particularly when we're coming to looking at the game as a whole and actually, well, come on, let's, you know, we really need to drill down here and we really need to work out how we make this better for everybody. You know, this isn't about having an agenda. This isn't about um, egos. This is about creating a space within which everybody or the majority of people who are within it get something from it beneficial and not have something taken away and in some cases on you know the the hard end of the spectrum that we spoke about um 
it is, you know, some people decide, decide it's too much um, and they take their life. Yeah. Now that is the extreme end, but there's a lot in between who are suffering and are suffering trauma unnecessarily so and don't have the sufficient tools, the sufficient spaces, um, the sufficient people around them within which to dissipate those those traumas. I think in your own words, Sue, you said it best recently enough on LinkedIn. You spoke about aftercare and football. You spoke about it being it should be the last resort need if you're the few, not the lifeboat for the many. Yeah. I think what rings true, especially of this conversation, is that a lot of these things are uncomfortable home truths. I think what we're starting to notice, though, is a wider trend. There seems to be a few pros currently involved in games, such as Stephen Cocker. They're, they're doing an absolutely terrific job speaking mm -hmm. about how well, he's a pro football. I mean, what can we do to encourage others to follow suit? Um, what well, do, do you mean kind of so that when you're released from football at whatever stage, it doesn't have a traumatic impact? Is that what you're, yeah. Yes. Well, as, as you say, you know, my, my philosophy around that is um, that work should start as soon as somebody enters that environment. You know, why, why do we wait until the release that then we kind of think, right, we need to help that person do this, this and this, when actually we should be preparing them as an individual, not, you know, I'm not talking about, um, all right, they need to do all of these, this, these qualifications, they need to know what they want to do next. And it's about identity and no, 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 let's go underneath all of that. Let's do the work on enabling them to know who they are, to be comfortable with that, emotionally literate and know where they can be emotionally vulnerable who they can be emotionally vulnerable with and when and provide them with the belief in themselves and that no matter what happens externally to them or in their journey that they will always fundamentally be okay that, that them as, as an individual, as um, the essence of self, if you like, you know, doesn't, doesn't change. But what we tend to do is we layer upon layer so that we can't see that anymore. So we go into football and we're a footballer. You know, on social media, you put, I'm a baller. I'm a baller for Arsenal at 11 years old. No, you're not a baller for Arsenal. You're, you know, you're in the under 12 squad. Um, in the academy um, so we're, we're taking away the true identity of someone and we're covering that up if you like so that they can't access that when they really need that in times of trauma like being released you know they talk about um, yeah but that was my dream and now my dream's been taken away from me Okay, well, why was that your dream in the first place? You know, yes, okay, we can aspire to do certain things in our life. But the dream is to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But we attach that happiness to certain things happening in the future. And that comes back to a previous point I was talking about 
you know, living in the now in the present. But we don't teach kids to do that. They do it naturally. The younger they are, they do that naturally. You watch a toddler and they're living in that moment. They live their emotions. You know, they're, they can self-regulate Yeah, between crying, then they're happy, then they're angry and then they're laughing. And that's the normal um living of emotion isn't it but we teach kids out of that and yes there is an appropriateness there of course but we teach them out of it to the point where we deny feeling our emotions in that moment as being okay and I think it comes back to that so if 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 we're nurturing children and young people that has to be based in understanding ourselves as emotional beings um and that as an example when you are then released or you know you transition out of football that isn't all devastating it's part yes it's upsetting yes it's oh god you know I really kind of thought I was going to do this and I'm really sad because it means I'm not going to see my friends in in that environment and yeah it means me changing you know um my weekly schedule and yes of course it's upsetting of course it it can feel overwhelming but it's not the end of everything because you know that's only part of you or part of your experience of your life but we become wholly invested in that and that's where we teach these youngsters to be is holy of you have to be focused you have to work hard you have to sacrifice you have to do this da, 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 da. and then we're surprised when there's a fallout when that young person exits football and we're like oh how did that happen <laughs> but we didn't do the work from the start we didn't do the best for them we didn't develop and help them develop themselves as individuals, as people right from that start. Because if we'd done that, I hate the word um, resilient. I often get into arguments about the, the word resilient. Oh, you've got to make them resilient. Well, one, what does that actually mean? Two, resilient, and particularly in sport, you know, is a massive umbrella term. A lot of young people don't understand what that means. So they take this, take it on board that it's like, oh, I can't show my emotions. I've got to be strong. I can't be weak. I can't be soft. You know, I've got to really struggle through. That's what resilient means. And I, and, and I think for that, a lot of sports psychology uses the word resilient. We're making people resilient. We're resilient to what? Well, you know, I, I don't understand the the use of that language when you're, when you're trying to provide that flexibility, that that organicness to meeting life as it turns up for us, you know, I've come across a, a word recently, which I'm really exploring and I really like because I think it takes it beyond that. And that's anti-fragile. You know, we don't want to be fragile because then we crumble at everything. Resilient means that we have to, it's almost like I, I kind of look at resilient as like a, um, I don't know, hard boiled egg, if you like. So fragile is an egg that, you know, raw egg. Then you've got resilient is hard boiled egg. So really tough, but actually it can still crack. But anti-fragile for me is something about kind of meeting the knocks as they turn up because you know you can meet them. You know that you can deal with whatever life throws at you because you've got that inner understanding, that inner core 
but you're not going to break. Yeah, you're not going to break. You're not going to crumble. You're going to meet it. You're going to be upset. You might be frightened. Um, there's going to be some pain. But I'm going to go on after that. And I'm going to be different. I'm anti-fragile because I've met that and I've grown because of it. And I've gone on to the next thing. You know, I've taken what I've learned. And I'm now stepping forward. And that's what I mean by anti-fragile. Resilient for me is it doesn't, there's no growth there, if you like. But anti-fragile is about, yeah, understanding that things are going to be hard sometimes. And I want to learn about, I want to learn how I meet that. I want to learn how I can explore that. I want to learn how I can stand up to that or not. And if I do crumble in that moment, I know that I'm going to get back up again. And I'm going to get back up again a bit wiser, a bit more self-aware, and I'm going to move forward with that. And I think that's where we let these young people and kids down in this environment, is we expect them to be resilient. And resilient, I don't think personally, and it is only my opinion, that that is conducive to growth in the long run and meeting life in the long run. Does that make sense? I do go on. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's invaluable and fantastic insight too. It's very much a case of what does the future look like? You know, it mm. very much looks like to me in your own language there, it ought to be a lot more top-down guidance as opposed to top-down control. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So not controlling based on your experience and your opinion, because it is only that. It's your perspective. You know, and I think it is it's about I love that, actually. Yeah. So the guidance is the support in coming through that and understanding the experience from that individual's perspective of what's going on for them and really being willing to listen to that, not judge it. Oh, well, I never felt like that when I was at that point and I did this. Well, OK, great. But it's not about you. It's about this individual. It's about this young person. Let's. Let's step back and actually be willing to listen to that vulnerability and support it. There's nothing wrong with being vulnerable. We're all vulnerable at times. Whether we want to admit that and embrace that is another thing. And I, but I think, again, that's another key to then being allowed to grow into that anti-fragility. You know, vulnerability is very much part. We're all vulnerable. You know, we're all we're all vulnerable to so much. But if we're not allowed to embrace that and to, to speak it and to be heard, then it almost comes like we're not allowed to be. You know, I can't talk about that. And that becomes part of the baggage then, doesn't it, again, that part of that rucksack that we carry around, you know, and that just gets heavier and heavier. And when we step over that white line in order to perform on the pitch, we've got that rucksack on our back whilst we're doing it. Oh, it just doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. So to be able to explore everything that we are, in a space that welcomes that and is willing to listen and support that, I think is the key. How you do that is by having leaders in those environments that do that themselves anyway and, and see that and are willing to be vulnerable themselves rather than, like you say, that wanting to control everything because it's about, you know, meeting this target, meeting that target. And the only way I can see to meet that target is by doing this, this and this. Rather than, well, actually, we could meet that, we could exceed that target if we step back, 
And let's just see and have faith that these young people have far more about them than what we think they do as well. You know, let, let's put a little bit more trust in there. Oh, it sounds a bit like utopia, really, doesn't it? If I was to go against one bit of advice that you've given on this podcast, Sue, and deny you and me the present moment, if we were to look forward into the future, let's say, okay. let's pick an arbitrary time 10 years from now, yeah. and we pick up the phone again and have a similar con and have this conversation, do you envisage much, if anything, to have been changed? Um, I'm I am an optimist, and I um, I have a lot of faith in in human beings. I think we're incredible. Um, I think that all depends on who is willing to pick up the reins and look at this from a completely different, not completely different, but from a a, a new perspective and allow and allow that new thinking to come through. Um, have a bit of faith and, and and trust and willingness to explore um I don't know Connor it's really difficult isn't it because it is down to the individuals you know who who are in the space um from my own experience of those that I've spoken to over the last however many years in football it's better than it was. There is a willingness to hear. I mean, for example, the mental health stuff. I mean, I, I did a mental health strategy at Brighton back in 2016, I think, before it was, you know, where it is now. And, you know, and um, the, the board, the directors, you know, were really happy to, to listen and, you know, implement part of that, etc. back then you know prior to it being where it is now so it does take pioneers isn't it people willing to pioneer something and look at it and and the momentum does it go and look where we are now with regards to you know even the words mental health you know right back in in those days it was a case of like oh do we have to use the word mental health because of the stigma yeah but, well, yeah, because that's what it is. You know, we all live in mental health all the time, good, bad, indifferent, whatever. It, you know, like we live in physical health. So it's about kind of changing the perception, the landscape of something. Um, how fast that happens is, uh, is part of the issue, isn't it? You want people to be on board with things a bit quicker and willing to, you know, because we owe it, don't we? And one of my, my things with work with young people, you know, um, when I worked in formal education, it was very much about, well, I need these resources now. So I, I worked a lot with challenging and disaffected young people for want of a better label. Um, but I only had them for nine months. So I needed what I needed then and there in order to make a difference. I can't wait two years for going through a process of securing funding in order to do this and waiting for this, you know, the, the, um, uh, the person with the power to say, yes, I, I need it now to make a difference to these young people now. And I think it's the same in football, you know, it's almost like we have to wait for the, you know, the, um, the sand timer, we have to wait for all the grains to drop through before anything's done. We need people in, in in positions of power that can see the the relevance and the importance of this now, so that we can start this now. It's a bit like someone said to me the other day about you know there are only two good times to plant a tree. You know, one was thirty years ago, and one is now. 
<laughs> you know, so you either do it when, you know, you know it needs doing so you can sit under it in 30 years time. But of course, we can't go backwards. We can only do what is pertinent right now in this moment. So to answer your question, that depends on who is in power and who has the ability to make those decisions and to, I suppose, to bring in the people that's needed to, to look at that. But I am hopeful and I am optimistic. I have to be. And bearing all that in mind, as we bring this podcast to a close, so, and given that quite a large sum of people who listen to this podcast are employed in footballing circles, what mm. would be the bit of advice you'd give to them to reflect on after listening to this episode? Oh, wow. Um... I think to maybe just to put to one side their previous perceptions and their previous understanding, even if it's just for a glimpse or in order to make space for another perception to come forward. Because we're very good, aren't we, as human beings, because we, we work quite habitually. So we tend to stick with what we know. But the trouble is, it brings, you know, another cliched saying, but if you've always done what you've always did, you'll always get what you always got. And I think that's where we need people in this space who are willing to share vision. Yeah, it's not about us as individuals. This is about creating a space that benefits the next generation, but will inevitably benefit us as well so yeah just to kind of maybe put aside everything that you currently believe and think it should be and just have that space for new possibility yeah there are no shoulds are there there's only ever possibility and uh and i think there needs to be more of that really so I think those are very wise words. Um, I have to thank you once again for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm sure countless others will have enjoyed listening to both you and I speak about some of the invaluable work which you're doing in the industry at this present time. I certainly hope it garners the impact and momentum it deserves. Oh, thank you so much. It's been lovely to be able to share my thoughts um, and ideas. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great.